You are listening to Pastor Mike Greiner of Harvest Community Church in Catanning, Pennsylvania. We pray that you will be challenged today as you listen to a sermon entitled, Victory and Stewardship of the Body, based on Romans 6.13, recorded on Sunday, June 26, 2016. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org. Let's join Pastor Mike as he preaches. Today's subject, stewardship of your body. Stewardship of your body. We are looking to see how we can increase the health and size of God's church everywhere. We are in a, near the end of a series on, on uh, four of the practical means for doing that. Prayer, evangelism, discipleship, and stewardship. And stewardship is something that, that is a word that mostly only Christians use. Every once in a while someone else will use it. What does it mean? It means maximizing God's investment in you. God and gives you all that you have and are, but then he actually wants return on, on his investment. He doesn't want us to be passive consumers, just taking all he gives in like fat little babies who only know how to take food from their mommies. He wants us to be grown-ups who actually get to work in his kingdom and bring him a return on what he's invested. Our lives are not to be wasted, but used for his glory. And, uh, and, and there's three areas that's going to happen in your body, your time, and your possessions, because those are the three things he's given you to manage. Your body, your time, and your possessions, that's most everything. And, and so we're going to look at the body today. And, and believe it or not, if you're going to look at about how to steward your physical body, then you're really looking at a text that talks about sanctification. So what I would like to do, and, and you might, some of you have said, sanctification, what's that word mean? Some of you know it, some of you don't. I'll be, I'll be back to there in a second, but I want to take a unique approach to this sermon. What I'd like to do is, is, is give you a one-verse text. It's going to be Romans 6.13. If you have your Bible, you can open it now. And I would suggest you do open it and keep it open to Romans. We're going to be in 6 and 7, almost exclusively. Um, some stuff that Peter says is difficult to understand, Paul's writings, but not without our ability to understand. So Romans 6.13. I'm going to first explain that one verse... Second, I'm going to undo what I did by explaining how you might not be able to do that one verse. And third, I'm going to explain how you can do that one verse. I'm going to put it back together. So explain the text, explain why you may not be able to do the text, and then finally explain why you can. Now to talk about maximizing God's return on the investment in your body is going to lead you to sanctification. What is sanctification? That's a, that's a theological word. Sancta means holy, being made holy. Now, when you come to Christ, you're instantly made holy by faith. Jesus Christ died for your sins. You receive them. Romans 5, 1, we are justified by faith. And you might say, well, then that's the end of the matter, isn't it? No, because God leaves you in this body, in this fallen world, to live for him. And though your outside may be fading away, inside you are being conformed into the image of God. You are learning to walk in the spirit instead of the flesh. You are growing. One way to say practicing sanctification would be called living by faith and not sin during your life on this earth before Jesus returns, before you're resurrected, right? So that's sanctification, that process. And you're in it if you're a Christian. You're justified when you were saved, and now you're in sanctification. And when we talk about shepherding our body or stewarding our body to bring God a return on investment, when, we, when we're going to look at our text, you'll see that it really is about sanctification. Look at Romans 6.13. This is our text. So we're going to read it. I'm going to explain it. This is a sandwich text. It has two pieces of bread and meat in the middle. You'll see that. 
Verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. That's one piece of bread. Here's the meat. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And here's the other piece of bread. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. I call it a sandwich because sandwiches, all three parts are important, especially if you have good bread. Uh, Good fresh Italian bread would be my preference, but you may have something else you like. Um, uh, But it's the roast beef in the middle that we're really going for there, right? So you'll notice that this verse has really, if you take the beginning and the end, they are reflections of each other, but they're opposites. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, and then at the bottom, present your members to God as instruments to righteousness. Do you see how they mirror each other in an opposite kind of way? But in the middle, you have another phrase, but present yourselves to God as though who have brought, been brought from death to life. You want to keep your Bible open to that verse and keep your eye on that verse. Um, what's on your screens will change, but that verse, just keep your Bible open whether it's electronic or paper. Now, let me first explain the text by giving you five observations about it. Number one, the word members is better translated parts. Now, I'm not a great um, Greek scholar. I'm not even a Greek scholar. Uh, I know just enough to be dangerous. But I am, I, I am a native English speaker. I've been speaking it since childhood, and I grew up among native English speakers, and I know English intuitively from my culture, and I know how we use English words. So the Greek word here is melee, um, that's translated members. Do not present your melee, your members to sin. I don't mind that word. It's, it's not a bad translation, but melee in Greek means part or body part even. It's a body part. See, when we say members in English, what we normally mean is a person who's part of a club, goes through some initiation or whatever it takes to be in that club. So we look at the word members as an actual human, a whole person, but that's not what he's saying. We don't call these our members. We call them our fingers or digits, maybe. Um, but you know, if I say, what's your elbow and what's your knee and, and what's your foot? Well, what will we call these? We're not going to say members. We're going to say they are parts. That's what we call them, body parts. So I would rather translate that part. I think it would be easier for us to follow. Um, do not, and you're not messing up your Bible by translating that differently. There is no English version that's the perfectly inspired version. I don't care what you might have heard about the King James The Bible wasn't written in English, definitely wasn't written in 1620 English, it was written in Greek and Hebrew, a little bit of Aramaic, so I would change that, there's there's nothing sinful writing in your margin parts, so let's move on. Second, you are instructed to not do something and to do something, please notice that about this text so you know what it's telling you to do. It's not just telling you to not do something, it's telling you to do something, So there's a wrong thing to do, don't do that. There's a right thing to do, make sure you do that. We want to do both halves. Three, when you present your body parts, they become tools. I'm going to mess with the translation one more time. Tools to the one you present them to. The word instruments, I'm not saying that's a bad translation. It's okay. Instruments probably works here. Um, But the, the Greek is hopla. It means tool or weapon. I don't think weapon is a good translation here. Present your bodies as weapons, um, but tools. So when you present your body parts, they become tools of the one you present them to. It's like when the doctor says scalpel, boom, you lay a tool in their hand. When you present your body parts to, to, to be used for sin, it's like body part, boom, you put your body in there, all right? Tools. Third, or fourth, your body parts, and by extension, your whole body, are neither good nor evil, or evil nor good, but they're neutral. 
They're neutral. This can be confusing. Your body is not good or evil. It is neutral. Your physical body is not good or evil. It is neutral. Right? Your body is just a thing. Nothing against your body. So, you know, you're, I'm sure your thing is, is a, you know, beautiful from head to toe. But it's just, it's neutral. It's a tent. It's, it's something you use. It's not evil, and it's not good. It's not strong. It's weak, but it is not evil. It's just what it is. This can be confusing because Paul, who writes a lot about the body, the flesh, the old nature, uses the word flesh, terms like body of sin, when he's not speaking of your physical body. You want to catch this, especially when you're studying Galatians and Romans. It'll help unlock what he's saying. You have to discern when he says flesh or body, does he mean this neutral thing? Or does he mean your soul before Christ? He calls your soul, before you knew Christ, your flesh. He calls your soul the body of sin. He calls your soul the old man. All things we would say are physical. So it can be a bit confusing, but Paul's using language to try to say something that's difficult to understand. Doesn't mean we can't understand it. So your body parts are neither evil nor good. They, again, put it together, they are tools, like the scalpel in the surgeon's hand. It's a, is the scalpel good because the surgeon, you give it to Ben Carson and he separates baby brains and, and everything comes out good, you know, like the Siamese twins and whatnot? Well, you can say, yeah, that's a good scalpel. Well, you're silly. It's not a good scalpel, it's a good surgeon. You take that same scalpel and you put it in the hand of somebody who likes to kill people, and now he's using it to cut people in bad ways. And you say, well, that's a bad scalpel. Not really, it's a bad man. Like a wrench. You give a wrench to uh, a good mechanic, and he fixes uh, what's broken. You say, oh, good wrench? No. Mr. Good Wrench, I guess you could say. But it's still the guy. It's still the guy. You're saying, or gal, no offense, you ladies may be good with a wrench. But if you take that wrench, and you use it to clunk Mrs. Scarlet in the ballroom... Bad wrench? No. It's Professor Plum that's bad. He's the one who's, who clunked her. If you didn't catch that cultural reference, shame on you. Sure, you learned Monopoly, but you haven't learned the king of board games yet. Risk. Well, there's a clue. So one way to look at it is your body is God's toolbox. Or Satan's. Right? Um, okay, f- fifth thing to notice here from our text is when you present yourself to God, and this is the sandwich in the middle, this is the meat in the middle, this is the, this is the, I'm not, is that more important than the beginning of the end? Well, the beginning of the end are our commands, but the one in the middle is the power to do the command. When you present yourself to God, you are to do so as one who has moved from spiritual death to spiritual life. The middle of our text is telling you, you need to understand, listen, who you are if you're going to obey this text. You need to understand your identity. You need to believe the right thing about yourself. Not what your brain tells you, not what your mommy tells you, not what your school tells you, not what your friends tell you. What God says you are. And what he says you are is someone who was spiritually dead and is now spiritually alive, which requires you to to believe two things. One, naturally, before you know Christ, you are dead inside in your spirit. It's not talking about your body. Although your body is dying, it's fading away, it'll be gone soon. Spiritually, you are dead before you know Christ as Savior. When Christ comes, he gives you life, and that life is in his Holy Spirit. Let's be very clear about the Holy Spirit. We don't talk about him um, a lot because he's not mentioned explicitly a lot in Scripture, but let's not ignore him. He is God, 
And, and he is one of the three persons of the Trinity. And if the Holy Spirit is in you, Jesus is in you, and the Father is in you. They don't separate out. But, that, but what he does is he mingles his life with yours in some way. How do we know this? Know this? The scripture says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. The spirit life is in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So to come back, you have to identify yourself as before you came to Christ, you were dead spiritually. When you came to Christ, you were made alive. Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy has made us alive in Christ. So there was a resurrection that already took place, not in your body, that's to come, but in your spirit. And if you don't grasp that, you will not be able to do the two ha- other two halves of this verse. Are you with me? Okay, let's put it all together. In explaining this text, one sentence, here we go. As Christians, as those who are alive spiritually and not dead, by a decision in your mind... By a decision you make in your mind, give your whole life to God, your whole body, every day by giving your body parts to doing good deeds. And do not present your body parts to be used as tools of evil deeds. Do you see how that sentence summarizes our verse? Are you with me? Good, because now we're uh, going to shift from first to second. Heck, we're going to jump right to third and hit the gas, okay? You ready? Why we might not be able to do what the text asks us to do. Many people cannot present their body parts as tools for righteousness because they do not have victory over the sin within them. In other words, you you have to have the middle of the sandwich, (laughs) You, you, have to, you have to be alive in your heart or you're not going to be able to do this. Someone who's, who, who may be not a believer might say, well, wait a minute, you're no better than me. First, I agree. There's nothing in you that makes you more special than me. I agree. Well, so then why can't I do it if you can do it? Because a change has to happen. Here's how Paul puts it, Romans 7, 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. He's not talking about his body. What's he talking about? His dead old man, his old spirit. Nothing good dwells there. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. What he's plainly saying is human beings are naturally powerless to avoid doing evil. Human beings want to do good and cannot. Even unbelieving human beings, they have certain rules they want to live by. They have certain things. You talk to them, they'll tell you. Well, I wanted to do that good thing. Why don't you do it? I don't know. (laughs) Because I didn't really want to. The answer is because evil lives within them. You're not going to learn this through science, although science will confirm it. You won't learn this through sociology, although sociology, if you pay attention, will confirm it. You won't learn this through psychology, but psychology, if you pay attention, will confirm it. But the Bible teaches us every human being has evil within them. Evil is not a force outside of us, although there is spiritual forces that are evil. Evil is the reality within us as human beings, sons and daughters of Adam. And that evil gets in the way of doing good. There's something within fighting against us. Let me uh, let C.S. Lewis, if this helps, sometimes it helps to hear someone else explain it. So let's let C.S. Lewis explain a little bit of this. If you listen, this is an extended quote, but I think if we follow it, there'll be something good for us. Ready? C.S. Lewis says it this way. 
I'm only trying to call attention to a fact. The fact that this year or this month or more likely this very day, we have all failed to practice ourselves the kind of behavior we expect from other people. There may be all sorts of excuses for us. That time you were so unfair to the children? Well, that's when you were very tired. That slightly shady business about the money, the one you almost forgot, well, that came up when you were hard up. And what you promised to do for old so-and-so and you never did, well, you never would have promised if you'd known how frightfully busy you were going to be. As for that behavior to your wife or your husband or your sister or your brother, if I knew how irritating they could be, I wouldn't be surprised at it. The point is this. These explanations are one more proof of how deeply, whether we like it or not, we believe in right and wrong. Human beings know right and wrong. God put it in them to know it. If we do not believe in decent behavior, why should we be so anxious to make excuses for behaving badly? The truth is, we believe in decency so much, we feel the rule of law pressing in on us so much, that we can't bear to face the fact that we are breaking it. Consequently, we try to shift the responsibility. If that isn't humanity, I don't know what is. For you notice, Lewis goes on, that it is only for our bad behavior that we find all these explanations. It's only for our bad temper that we put it down to being tired or worried or hungry. We put our good behavior down to ourselves. These, then, are the two points I wanted to make, says Lewis. First, that human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way, and they cannot really get rid of that idea. Secondly, that they do not, in fact, behave in that way. What Lewis describes eloquently, Paul describes bluntly when he says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. Paul got right to the point, didn't he? That is in my flesh, for I desire to do what's right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. So how can we do Romans 6.13? How can we present our bodies? Well, you can't. You can't, unless something changes. Look, only the kindness of God keeps us from doing great evil at all times, right? You ever had that moment where, where you just lost it? You, you were stressed, and we're all, we all feel stress, and we all feel stress from imaginary things. I, but imagine, let me, let's say invisible, things we imagine our mind are going to doom us when whatever it is doesn't get done. If I don't get this homework done, if I don't get this schoolwork done, if I don't get this work done, if the money doesn't come in, if my health doesn't come right, if, if the world ends, if, if the government goes, we all, we all feel stress for these things that are in our heads, right? And they press on us, and they press on us, and they make us self-centered, self-focused, and selfish. So that then, then somebody comes in and gives us one more problem. We're already a ball of stress, and we say, shut up, what are you doing that to me for? And then your family member's like, Oh, my word. Then you come back and say, oh, I'm sorry. I was just feeling stress. Why do we act like that under stress? Why don't we act good under stress? Jesus was under stress. He never lost control in sin. He had more stress than you did. He had bigger problems. Well, because he didn't have any sin within him. See, that's really the real us. So if you look at it this way, except for the grace of God, controlling external factors that we don't even see, You'd be that way too, all the time. You'd sin all the time. There'd be no stopping you. That's why you got to be very careful judging other people their sins. You're assuming <laughs> you wouldn't be the same in their shoes. Like they say, if you're gonna, before you judge someone, make sure you walk a mile in your shoes, in their shoes. 
because then you're a mile away and they have no shoes. It's <laughs> a little tip for you. And go ahead and say whatever you want. Look how Paul puts this, this principle in Romans 7, 5. For while we were living in the flesh, again, he does not mean our body. He means our old nature. Our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members, parts, to bear fruit for death. While we, in our old sinful nature, if you tell, well, do good. The nature, sin is, 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 is alive in a way in our deadness. And it, it, it the, what sin does is rebels against God. So if you say, well, God says do this. Do what's right. If your inner conscience says do what's right, the sin in you says, uh-uh, I've got to be me and I'm going to do it my way and I don't care what other people say. I should do the right thing. I ain't doing the right thing because I want to do what I want to do to make me happy. That's what sin always says. So you bring in the law, it's not going to make sin shape up. Fact, according to Romans 7, 5, it wakes it up. It says it's aroused by the law. I mean, sin may be giving a dude a break for a while. And then someone comes in and says, hey, don't do that. And all of a sudden, sin goes, I wasn't thinking of doing it. But now who are you to tell me not to do it? And it wakes up in us. Listen. You can't conquer sin by commanding a human to do good things any more than you can stop a spider from eating by putting flies in her web. This is why the world's solutions to everything is education doesn't work. If we just educate people, they won't get AIDS. They won't do the behavior that gets them AIDS. But they do that behavior more than ever. Well, we educated them. Oh, you told them, act morally. Though you didn't say that, you said act morally. And you're shocked that they did the opposite. Education is not the panacea. It's not the, that means cure-all. Because it goes against the principles of nature. Paul says, I know that no good thing dwells in me that is in our flesh. That is the state of all the sons and daughters of Adam. We want to sin, and that's where our problem is. If we say in Romans 6.13, if the command is, don't give your body parts to sin, but do Give them to good deeds. Well, you can't do it. Romans 7, 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions were aroused by the law. And they were at work in our parts to bear fruit for death. So apart, this is a summary statement. Apart from the life of Jesus within, the Holy Spirit of God within, we are powerless to use our parts for God's purposes. We're going to sin. Third thing I said I'd explain. I said I'd explain the text. I'd explain why you might not be able to do the text. And then I said I'd explain how we can certainly do what the text asks. And that's where we are now. Here's a summary statement of that. The way we obey the command to present our body parts to God as tools for good and not as tools for bad deeds is that we gain victory over the sin within us through the death of Jesus and the life he gives us within. God tells us to try something we can't do. Then he empowers us to do it. Jesus, the Holy Spirit within, equals the power to obey. What happens when a person comes to know Christ as Savior to their old spiritual nature? 
Why is it that was so strong and controlling? Why does it lose its grip now? Okay, here's the answer. Ready? This is the answer from the scripture. Where God reveals knowledge you can get from nowhere else. You could be the smartest professor in the world. And if you will not humble yourself and listen to the Bible, you won't get this. But any of us sitting right here, we can get it. We're standing. What happens to the old spiritual nature is Jesus kills it on the cross 2,000 years ago. Jesus killed When you receive Christ, what you're also receiving is the death of yourself, spiritually. The death of your dead self. I know, this is hard stuff, but just let it be true. Think about it. When you receive Christ as Savior, you are receiving something He's done for you. He died in your place, and that death did something in the spiritual realm. It He vicariously, as a substitute, he died for you, and he took your old nature on his body. He died, it died. Okay, then he rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, and he sends his Holy Spirit. So if you have faith, if you trust in him, he has killed your old nature. He puts something new in you, the Holy Spirit. And he combines it somehow with your life, our For you have died, the Bible says, but your life is hidden with Christ. Or 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. Now, the Holy Spirit within you is able to obey God. In fact, he is God. the, the, The righteous rules of God, he does not submit to. They emanate from his being. They are him, if you will. They come from him. And he has the power to obey. Listen, this is very important for you to get, Christian, because the key to sanctification is not willpower, it's faith. And here's something you must believe. The power to obey is already in you. We fail when we listen to Satan, who says, no, you're never going to beat this. Jesus died, he killed our old nature. He raised and sent the Spirit. Now, our text is, is 613. What I'd like to do is walk us backwards and, and, and come meet that text again. That's how we're going to finish out this message. So, so we can understand more of this. We're going to go back to Romans 6, 6. Hopefully your Bible's still open. Go back to Romans 6, 6. It's really good if your Bible's open. What's on the screen will go away one verse at a time. If your Bible's open, you can watch it flow. Romans 6, 6. We're going back... Our verse is 6.13. We're just going back seven verses. We know that our old self was crucified. There it is. Do you believe it? That's step one. Believe that that's true. Maybe somebody said, I didn't know that. Well, now you do. So believe it. Our old self was crucified with him. Why did that happen? In order that the body of sin, that's not this body, Paul uses the term to talk about your old man, your flesh, your old nature, your spiritually dead old self. That your body of sin might be brought to nothing. Power taken away from it. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. To be lost is to be a slave to sin. To become a child of God is to be free. So the obstacle to us obeying him has been destroyed. On the body of Christ. Follow? You with me? 
Now, this would lead to a natural question. Are you saying that I'll never sin again? That I'll only do good? Some have wrongly come to that conclusion. Some believe that as a Christian, you get to a point you're just never going to sin again. And I think that's why Peter warned, when you read Paul, be careful. <laughs> There's some difficult things here. No, it's not saying you will never sin again. It's saying you have the power now to not sin in any given moment. You have the power to do good because sin in you has been slain and the Holy Spirit, which loves righteousness, is in you. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary, wrote, somebody wrote a book about him called Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. I'm going to save you the money of the book and tell you the secret. His whole secret was to, to have the victorious Christian life, to overcome sin and to accomplish what God wants is to let the Jesus life within you run your world. That's the secret. The Jesus life in you. We are, uh, I'm, I'm going to drill down more on this point. How come we don't, how come we then we just never have to deal with sin anymore? We are volitional creatures. In other words, we make choices. God does not make automatons, right? We don't just, we don't just operate in the way he says, period. We, he has humans who have personalities and we are persons and we make a choice and love requires that freedom and we have to make volitional choices. And we used to be powerless to not choose to sin, but now we are empowered let me read you a verse that's um, not on your screen, but you can write down your notes. Galatians 5, 16 and 17. But I say, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Paul is saying, look, there is a way to do this. Walk by the Spirit. Learn to let the Spirit power in you lead you, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Both halves are there. You're going to do the do and not do the don't, but you can't just by your willpower say, I'm not going to sin. I'm not going to sin. You'll lose that fight all the time because you're not walking in the Spirit. You've just returned to that old fight you used to lose. Do you follow? You're not going to beat sin by an act of willpower anymore. You're not going to stop a spider from eating by putting flies in her web. For the desires of the flesh, Galatians 5.17, are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing what you want to do. What is he saying? We're at war. You live in the war zone. The world, the flesh, and the devil are going to try to get you to go to the old nature. So you volitionally are going to have to engage some many young men in college who want to serve Christ. There's, there's always, every semester, someone will come up to a leader, and it's going to happen all over this country. They're going to up to some leader in their Christian fellowship or pastor and say, why can't God just take my sexual desire away because of their struggles with lust? He's not going to. And there'll be a point come when you'll be glad he didn't. It doesn't, you're just not going to say, well, I guess I'm just not going to struggle with temptation. No, you're a volitional creature. You're in this fight. But you, what he's saying is the victory has been given to you. Let's move. Go back to Romans 6. The very next verse after 6 is 7. I'm good with math like that. And <laughs> For one who has died has been set free from sin. That's the principle Paul puts out there. If, if there's a guy who has trouble with kleptomania 
and pyromania and all the manias. He steals things and sets things on fire and, and lies all the time. And you say, could you stop stealing things, setting things on fire and lying? No, I just got to do it. Well, if someone shoots him dead, guess what he's just been freed from? He's never going to set anything on fire, steal, or lie again. And that's what Paul's saying. If you're dead, you're free from sin. What Paul is trying to tell us is what the Holy Spirit does when he comes in is sets us free from the having to sin. There's victory. You have died. Isn't that good to know? Some people are going to remember the day they received Christ and came to life. Make that also the day you died. I don't know. For me, I kind of got saved over a few weeks or months or something. But if you have a date that you can put on it, put that, that's when I died. I got a little tombstone, there I am dead. And now I'm alive in Christ. Look at it this way. Summary statements, we're going to take notes on it. Your old nature could not be made righteous by the preaching of the Ten Commandments. In fact, because of sin, the law only made you worse off. Because of sin, the law only made you worse off. Don't tell me one more thing God wants. I'm already blowing it on everything else he wants. You tell me one more thing, I'm going to not want to do that too. But, but what the law could not do, what is it that the law of God couldn't do? It could not make you righteous and good. God did through his son who condemned sin on a cross. Now I'm, I'm quoting Romans 8 there, but... God did through his son dying on a cross. When Jesus died on a cross, he killed your sin nature within. And you may say, well, it sure feels alive. Now God is asking us to believe his word, not our experience. We should never try to conform his word to our experience. It's supposed to go the other way. So when my experience says, well, my sin nature sure is alive, but my Bible says it's dead, who am I going to believe? That's an active, active volitional choice of my brain. I have to engage. So do you. The world is going the opposite way of God. All, everything in my culture says, go do this. What you doing that for? That's silly. Do this. My old nature is calling out, hey, remember when we used to be pals? It's like a siren. Strap me to the mast and sail me through. Because I can hear the sirens calling. And the devil himself, cheerleading me to sin. The devil's always been my, my be biggest cheerleader. Never gave me new ideas, just cheered for the ones I already had. I'm thinking of doing this sin. The devil's like, yeah, go Mike. But against all those, I have the Holy Spirit and the power not to sin. And there is a battle, and the battle takes place where? Where's the battle in your life take place? In your brain, in your mind, you must engage your thinking, your volition, your choices. You must think. You must believe. You must trust. So how do we win that battle? I just gave it away. Know and believe the truth and live like it. Let's go back to Romans 6. Jump to verse 11. We're still two verses away from our verse. Here is what you're supposed to do. Notice this is a do something verse, verse 11. So you also must. This is what you must do, Christian, Paul says. You must consider yourself. There's your verb. It's a command. Consider. That's what you do. You're going to consider. 
It, do, it doesn't mean just ponder. Hmm. It means reckon. In other words, look at this, identify this as this. Consider yourself dead to sin, and there's two things to do. Consider yourself alive to God in Christ. Consider yourself dead. Consider yourself alive. Both of them are faith propositions. Are they true? Do you believe it? That's your choice. Consider yourself dead. You're changing your identity in order to know and believe. You have to change the way you think. To know the truth is true and to change the way you think in accordance with that is what faith is. Where people fail in faith is they often will say to know what's true and believe that is is faith. That's not faith. Even the demons believe and tremble, says James. To know what you know is true and then to change your thinking to conform it, that shows, oh yeah, you really do believe it, don't you? You really do believe it then. You ask a girl to marry you. She says, I don't think so. But you believe that she's going to love you. You're going to keep asking. You're going to buy the ring. And if you don't believe, you're like, well, guess that stunk. I'm out of here. But whatever you believe, you'll do. So you have to know the truth and change your thinking. And beating sin. Listen, Christian, if you're a note taker, obviously everything in the Bible is the best thing to underline and take notes on. But I'll give you a little phrase that you're going you're gonna to have to grasp this for sanctification. Beating sin is by faith, not willpower. It's never going to come by willpower. Willpower means by my own strength I can do this. Well, we already established you cannot beat sin. Well, how do I do it? By believing, by trusting Jesus, by trusting the power within uh, and, and a verse to put in your notes, 1 John 5, 4, to remind you of this, to memorize. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. I overcome the world? Yes. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Another, a verse that I think every Christian should memorize. Every, and I mean this. Every Christian should memorize Galatians 2.20. Call it power 2.20, right? Power is 110 or 2.20. This is 2.20 power. For I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Hudson Taylor's spiritual secret. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by, who knows the next word? Faith. The way I work out, and by then, flesh, he means your body. The way I work out my life in this neutral body is going to have to be by trusting in Jesus who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20. So verse Romans 6.12, we're one away from our text now. We're working our way back. Listen to this. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. It's a command. Don't let sin reign. Don't let sin be king of the body parts. Now, I realize we struggle with sin, and I realize Romans 6 and 7 are difficult passages, but I do think we have to be very careful, because I've heard many Christians present Romans 7 in such a way to say, well, you're just, you're going to sin all the time, can't help it. 
very thing I want to do, I do not do. What I don't want to do, I do. That's what Paul says. Yeah, he's trying to show you what happens if you put the flesh under the law. He's trying to show you it doesn't work. It's like trying to starve a spider by throwing flies in its web. It's the same Paul who says this in the same book. So he does not think you're supposed to be powerless over sin. He says, don't let sin sit on the throne of your body. Don't let it rule. Wants to rule, don't let it. And, and, and to, you may have a great day to, today. Tomorrow, when you get up, sin's still going to want to rule because the devil's still there, the world's still there, your old nature's still calling to you. So every day you're making this decision. I am dead to sin, alive to Christ. Dead to sin, alive to Christ. Dead to sin, alive to Christ. Every day. Don't let it rain and make you obey its passions. Your body is neutral. Sin says, I'll take care of that. Paul says, don't let it. And then we're back to our text. But instead, do not present the parts of your body as tools for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been from, brought from death to life. Because you have. And your parts, present them to God as instruments of righteousness. So you can see why, if you're going to be a good steward of your body, you're really talking about sanctification. You're talking about don't, look, some, someone wants to go to the strip club, get drunk. Now, I, I know these are male examples. I'm hopelessly masculine and not ashamed. Of that. You know, when a Christian wants to do those horrible things, and ladies, come up with your own. It's not that a Christian is saying, I'm going to curse you, God, and do what I want. Christians actually play this trick that Satan helps on us to do. God, just don't look for a minute. Just don't look for a minute. You're taking the Holy Spirit and all the parts he owns into the strip club with you. You can't get him to not look. He's going with you. Your body does not belong to you. It belongs to God. If you're going to bring a return on his investment, you've got to take the parts and say, how can I do good deeds with these hands today? How can I use this tongue to bring praises to God today? The tongue is not naturally going to praise. You're going to get up on some mornings and you're just going to be grumpy for no reason. And I've lived with a lot of women in the house. Women seem to have this kind of situation come and go on a regular basis. I don't know. They were all happy yesterday, God. If you raise a man in the house full of women, you know what I mean. But guys can do it too. For no reason. Your tongue's not just going to naturally, you got to say, tongue, you're a tool. You're a tool of God. I'm going to, by my volitional choice, turn off Megadeth, <laughs> turn on some citizen, and, and, and give grace to the hope, the glory of God. You know, I'm, I'm going to tell the gospel to myself and my neighbors. I'm going to preach. I'm going to use this tongue for something good. I'm going to use these feet to do good. Not going to use them to do bad. That's stewardship of your body. You're to use it for him. 
1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says this. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? That simply means he lives inside of it. Within you, whom you have from God, you are no longer your own. You are not your own. You don't belong to you. Well, if you don't belong to you, what do I do with this thing? Whatever the owner wants you to do. Your life is not your own. Your life is not your own. Quit treating it like it is. You were bought with a price, and it was a price. I, someone overpaid for me. The Son of God, the greatest price, the precious blood of Christ, spilt for me, to buy me. The currency was the blood of Christ. Someone got ripped off. You could have got me on eBay for a lot less. But I've been bought. And you've been bought. So glorify God in your body. So let me end this. Really to two audiences. First, those who know Christ, which is most of you in here. If you're going to maximize the return on God's investment, you must daily fight for your own sanctification. It's, the fight's not going away. Flesh wages war against the spirit. You say, well, this ought to be easy then. It's of faith, but that doesn't mean it's easy. You have to read your Bible. But yeah, reading it's not enough, though. You better believe what you see there. And that's not enough. You're going to have to change your thinking to conform with what you just saw. Do not be conformed to this world any longer, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is. That which is good, acceptable, and perfect comes by renewing your mind. Change your thinking. Conform to the Bible. Well... I know Jesus said he loves me, but my boyfriend doesn't. Okay, good. We're there. Life stinks. Why don't we just eat a worm? (laughs) Or the sovereign God has a plan for my life. I may be sad about that boy. I may be thinking I must be a loser. But that's not true. Because the Bible says, I am his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he has prepared beforehand that I should complete them. You've got to conform your thinking in real life. It can't just be your Sunday morning academic exercise. It's really got to apply where you live. He said, thou shalt not steal. It's not really stealing. It's just doing a little stuff under the table. It's time to conform your thinking in your real life. Because that's when you're living by faith. You just got to believe things that don't, you don't feel until you do. All right, the second group of people is if you're spiritually dead, sin is alive in you. And that means you're offensive to God every day. Now, I'm not judging you in the sense of saying I'm better than you. If, if you knew all the sinful thoughts I've had, all the sins I've done, you'd realize I don't even want to listen to that guy. He's a jerk. But Christ has mercy on jerks. In fact, he only has mercy on jerks. He never has mercy on people who think they've got it all together. If sin is alive, if you're not a Christian, you are dead spiritually. What's alive in you is sin, and sin is offensive to God. That means you're helpless to please him. You might think, well, I'll just do the Ten Commandments. We already covered that. It won't work. You're not going to, Make yourself look good. You can't polish. That's just private for me and my boys there. 
If you are helpless, there's only one wise course. Ask someone who can help, and it takes humility. Right? Right? If you're helpless, biggest problem, you ever see someone in your life, maybe a family member who's self-destructive, everyone around sees his or her problem, everyone's there to help, but that person simply will not go to that help because of their pride. (laughs) Husbands do this all the time. Wife's like, we fight all the time. We need a counselor. Husband, I ain't letting that guy know what I'm going through. What's he know? Until you humble yourself. But the wise person who's drowning calls on the guy who has the life preserver. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You don't have to go to hell. You can be pleasing to God because Jesus Christ died to take away that sin and forgive you and to give you life. If you have not called on Jesus as Savior, it's time to do that. It's the only reasonable course forward for your life. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.